You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. Mark Twain said, fiction must be plausible, truth needn't be, or words to that effect. And truth is, it's so much more unlikely. And so everything in this book that seems unlikely, those are the true things. Welcome back to Books and Ideas at Montalto, a Wheeler Centre podcast. Hi, everyone. You can continue enjoying your lunch, but I will interrupt because it is that time to have a conversation with Geraldine Brooks, who I am going to introduce. And I might embarrass you by, you know, talking about all your many accomplishments, but I hope you don't mind. Australian-born Geraldine Brooks is an author and journalist who grew up in Sydney's western suburbs. In 1982, she won a scholarship to the Journalism Master's Program at Columbia University in New York. Later, she worked for the Wall Street Journal, where she covered crises in the Middle East, Africa and the Balkans. In In 2006, she was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in Fiction for her novel, March. Her novels, Caleb's Crossing and People of the Book, were both New York Times bestsellers, and Year of Wonders, People of the Book, and The Secret Chord are international bestsellers, translated into more than 25 languages. She's also the author of the acclaimed nonfiction works, Nine Parts of Desire and Foreign Correspondence. In 2011, she presented Australia's prestigious Boyer Lectures, later published as The Idea of Home. In 2016, she was appointed Officer in the Order of Australia for her services to literature. Geraldine Brooks divides her time between Sydney and Massachusetts and has two sons. Please make Geraldine feel very welcome. How was that? Was that... That was, um, yeah. <laughs> we were just talking earlier about how hard it is to, you know, earn up to your um, to your resume. Um, but what a beautiful spot! Aren't we lucky to be here on such a gorgeous day and this wonderful wine and food and company? And thank you to our hosts and to the Wheeler Center. And I couldn't that I I can't think of a place on the planet I'd rather be right now. <laughs> So I thought we might start this conversation with a bit of a reading, um, if that's okay with you. I thought, you know, you could read a little bit of the book. I was just thinking 150 pages would be. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. um, I'm going to read from a very early section so I don't have to explain it. Um, this This is a novel that takes place in three time periods, but the historical spine of the book is in the 1850s in Kentucky. And this is um, a section titled Warfield's Jarrett, The Meadows, Lexington, Kentucky, 1850. She was no one's notion of an easy mare, not mean, but nervous, which could come to the same thing if you didn't account for it. Jarrett knew how to approach her, steady and deliberate. You shouldn't hesitate or show uncertainty, but if you were too high-handed, she'd make you pay. She could snake around and have a piece of your arm or kick out and crack a shin. Dr. Alicia Warfield had bred her himself and named her for his daughter-in-law, Alice Carneal. There were jokes around the barn about what he meant by that and what he might have been trying to say to his son. But Alice Carneal never hurt Jarrett. No horse ever had. Look at him, Dr. Warfield would say, lifting one of Jarrett's long skinny arms. He's half colt himself. Jarrett took it as a compliment for what would be the use in taking it otherwise. And it was true, he had a feel for horses, deep in the grain. The first bed he could remember was in a horse stall. He shared straw with the two geldings in the carriage house while his mother slept in the, ma- in the mansion, nursemaid to the mistress's infant. Jarrett barely saw her. His first language had been the subtle gestures and sounds of horses. He'd been slow to master human speech, but he could interpret the horses, their moods, their alliances, their simple wants, 
their many fears. He came to believe that horses lived with a world of fear, and when you grasped that, you had a clear idea how to be with them. Thank you. That sets us up very nicely um, because, you know, the book is about a lot of things, um, but at the heart of it it's a story of this racehorse, Lexington. And I, I heard that you had overheard the story at a lunch. Is that true? Yes, that's right. So I'd, um, I'd recently published uh, the novel Caleb's Crossing and a lot of the research for that, I got help from um, Plymouth Powtuxet Museum, which is a living history museum about first contact with the first uh, English settlers in the Wampanoag. And they'd asked me to come back for a donor's lunch and I thought I was there to be chum in the water, you know, to <laughs> sit next to somebody with a deep pocket and tell them how great the museum was and how <laughs> helpful it was. But they'd actually asked me there to pitch me another idea for a novel and you know you get a lot of people saying I've got an idea for you mm. <laughs> <laughs> and this was one of those cases they wanted me to write about a young woman from the plantation which would have been fine except that was the book I'd just published yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm sitting there nodding and smiling politely but like across the table three places down there was a guy with quite a resonant voice from the Smithsonian Institution and he was telling his lunch companion this wonderful story about how he'd just delivered a skeleton that had been forgotten in, a in an attic in the Natural History Museum in Washington and then rediscovered and taken to the International Museum of the Horse where the story of the greatest racehorse of the 19th century in America could be told in full. Uh, again, and this horse was not only the fastest and the bravest horse of the, of the era, but also the foundational stud sire that was responsible for for Kentucky becoming the center of the thoroughbred industry. And then he gets to the bit about what happened during the Civil War with this horse, and I'm like, could you just hold it on that Puritan girl? <laughs> I just need to hear about this horse. <laughs> so that was the idea, and yeah. that was it. And so. In that moment, do you then have an? Do you then go? I think that's going to be my next novel. Was that yeah. just instantaneous yeah. like that? It was pretty instantaneous because the backstory is, I had accidentally acquired a horse, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I, the, the horse crazy thing that happens to most girls at nine happened to me at fifty three. <laughs> I had my first riding lesson and I became obsessed <laughs> with my horse and caring for my horse and becoming a better rider and I wasn't getting any work done. And so this idea came along at an opportune moment so I could combine my day job with my new interest. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that I really loved about the book, and this is something that goes across your work, is just your attention to the historical detail and just learning so much about horse racing. I had no idea. Um, how much research did you have to do to sort of understand that period of um, America, but also the horse racing industry at that time? Yeah, well, I didn't know anything about that either. And it is so different, you know, and it was the national obsession. You can't overstate how involved people in the US were in thoroughbred racing. They were so interested in it. The, the, uh, there were three newspapers just devoted to horse racing and they had huge circulation and it cut across north and south and it cut across black and white and it cut across class. So it, it was, I don't know, it was like cricket if everybody played test cricket because everybody <laughs> had a horse, so they all had an opinion. And, um, uh, and um and I didn't know uh, the, the most salient thing that I quickly discovered was that this, this national obsession and this huge industry from which people drew so much prestige and wealth was built on the skills, expertise, and plundered labor of enslaved black horsemen. Mm. And so I knew that I was walking into something very different to what I had expected. So but was that how the character of Jarrett came to you? Was that through learning that history? Learning of, that history yeah. and that, you know, the first trainer of Lexington was a formerly enslaved 
trainer called Harry Lewis, who was one of the greatest trainers of the era and very respected and quite famous uh, for his skills. And he did have a son. Um, I learned later that his son was named Lou, but also did work with the horses. But there's a there's a portrait of Lexington in his old age, and it's supposed to be the greatest painting by this particular equestrian artist, Thomas Scott, who also appears in the book. And um, it says Lexington being led out by Black Jarrett, his groom. Wow. And so I wanted to know who that Jarrett was, and I went back to the records of the horse farm, uh, and I could find him. He existed, but all I could find was what he got paid after the Emancipation Proclamation when the property owner started paying his enslaved uh, employees they became. Um, but nothing about what it was like to be him or mm. what he was like. But I, I do know from spending time with horses that it's not the owner and it's not the trainer and it's not the jockey, it's the groom, mm. is the one that has the, the most intense relationship with the horse. Just out of curiosity, how much was he paid at emancipation? Um, I can't remember exactly, but not a lot. <laughs> yeah, uh, very small amounts of money. Yep. So you've got the horse, you've got Jarrett, and then you get to the structure. And something you do very well in the book is that you move between time periods. And I wonder if that was something that you decided early on, that you wanted to move between the 1850s, the 1950s, and 2019. I knew that I was going to have a contemporary story at the Smithsonian because I was so fascinated by the science around the skeleton and, you know, this is something that it, I love uh, as, a, as a novelist and as a journalist, I loved it too, which is the, um, the license you have to poke into other people's business and, <laughs> and to ask people about what they do. And I was fascinated by the Smithsonian scientists. So I knew that there was going to be a contemporary story. But when I went to the Smithsonian to learn about osteo prep and how you deal with bones and what you can learn from bones. They said, you know, there's a portrait of that horse in the Smithsonian collection. Would you like to see it? And it wasn't on display. It was in the study center. So we, we go to this, you know, back room and there is the um, portrait of Lexington. It's a lovely little uh, conventional 19th century equestrian oil painting but it had this extraordinary provenance because it had come to the Smithsonian in a bequest that included only edgy contemporary art of the post-World War II period that was mm. came with Picassos and de Koonings and Bridget Riley's, and, mm. and this was the only conventional 19th century painting, and they had belonged to a feminist art gallery owner and great um, dealer who had been... Um, had had backed um, avant-garde artists her whole career. So why did she have this? <laughs> so mm. I was so intrigued by that. So that led to the novel having an unexpected third strand. Right. And would that be Martha? Yes. Right. Um, so did you ever get to the bottom of that? No. <laughs> so you still don't know why. <laughs> unfortunately, the only person who might have had some insight into that died before I could get to him, right. which was her son. But I did find out that her mother had been a famous competitive equestrian who had died in a freak equestrian accident. Wow. And so I, I worked with that to explain her fascination. Wow. So the two other central characters in the book are Theo and Jess. Um, what can you tell me about how these characters came to you and, 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 and how they just, you know, worked through mm. the book? So Jess... Uh, is the Smithsonian scientist who's in charge of the osteoprep lab. And there was so much to research for all the other characters. I decided to give myself a bit of a break. <laughs> so I just based her on myself. <laughs> I thought there were moments when I was reading the book and I was sort of thinking, is this you? <laughs> I'm afraid so, for better and for worse. Um, she is... Um, I was a very strange and nerdy child growing up in the western suburbs and uh, and I'm kind of socially awkward and have, you know, committed my share of 
unintentional microaggressions. And um, <laughs> so I just, so yes, she's me. <laughs> and then I, 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 originally the Theo character was some dude from Kentucky. You're right. And and then I realized that I couldn't leave the story of race and injustice in the 19th century and pretend that that was something from the past, that if I was going to have a contemporary story, it had to also be about the resonance of uh, enslavement and how these are the unfinished issues and the you know the 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 I think most urgent issue to be addressed in American society. So mm-hmm. suddenly, um, the dude from Kentucky turns out to be a Nigerian American named Theo. Wow! <laughs> and race is a big part of this book. And I wonder when you were writing, you know, a lot has changed in the world in the last decade or so. One would argue, particularly around conversations to do with race, mm-hmm. and you know how art, you know, talks about these sorts of issues. Did you, were you apprehensive at any moment to sort of have, because you don't just have one character, you've got two characters that are black. Were you apprehensive about writing about an experience that was removed from your own, given the cultural moment that we're living yeah. through? Yeah, petrified. Yeah, I, I actually thought about giving up doing right. the book because I couldn't in good conscience erase the black horseman again. You know, there's a way to write this story and just center the white owners, who are very interesting characters, you know, really fascinating, could have done that. But I thought that that would be a betrayal, again, uh, of, of these really important people. And also by then I was so interested in the strange niche in the brutal system of enslavement that they occupied and the ambiguity of their position where they had an expertise that was so highly valued that put them in a category where they had some opportunities that were not available to other Mm -hmm. enslaved people to travel, for example, across state lines to acquire property in their own right and eventually in many cases buy their own um, freedom. Uh, And so I wanted to explore that. and then I, I just couldn't pretend that it was a story that was over. So it had, it had to bleed into the, into the present. And I just had to get on my big old pants and realize I might be walking into a bandsaw. Mm-hmm. But, um, if I was going to do the book, then it had to be done that way. And I did get a lot of advice from black friends. And, um, I think the most salient piece of advice was from, um, Marlon James, who's a really remarkably brilliant Jamaican American novelist. Mm. And he said, you know, when they talk about appropriation and I read those novels, the appropriation's the least bad thing in the book. <laughs> mm-hmm. Generally, they're just really lazy work. Mm. And he said, if you're going to do it, just do the work. So I tried to mm. do the work. And I'm sure if I haven't done it adequately, I will hear about it. <laughs> <laughs> and so what, what, what did that entail? I mean, what, what did doing the work mean? Um, for, the, for the historical section, just really diving deep into letters and archives and, you know, everything I could find where you could hear a voice or the echo of a voice and try and get a sense of the the strange position of these men who, you know, had a, a certain amount of privilege, but also the precarity of their situation where no matter how skilled and and how valued they were, they could still be ripped away from their family at any minute and sent to another part of the country and just trying to reflect that as best I could. And then in the contemporary, just, um, you know, imposing on my friends, (laughs) basically, just asking them. And then, you know, from the conversations, writing something and then um, asking them if they would read it. And mostly they'd say, that's shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you don't get it, and, you know, here. So, you know, this, this of all books I have, you know, relied on early readers more than any other. You weren't. Yeah. I mean, you talked about how apprehensive you were um, approaching the subject of race, but I wonder 
Did you also have a moment, and this might could be asked of your other work as well, where you sort of go, you're an Australian telling the American experience. Have you sort of questioned that if you are the right person to be um, talking about these sorts of stories? Is that, does that? I have a really privileged position in America in that regard. Uh, I realised that with March because when March came out, um, it got exactly the same reception in the North and the South. And if I'd been an American writer, I would have been put in a pigeonhole, I would have been a Yankee or I would have been a Southerner, and that would have meant half my audience was not interested in what I had to say. So as an Australian, I think that that's a, a great advantage, you know. So, yeah. Mm. I mean, one of the things that I think the book does well, and hopefully Marlon James might agree with this, is, um, you know, not to, you get to the humanity of your central characters in a way that is refreshing, particularly when you write about Jarrett and Theo. And one of the things that's heartbreaking about Jarrett's story is based on what you what you talk about, which is this real life experience of these African-American, you know, horsemen who have been largely erased from history. Um, and here you're reimagining what that experience would have been like for someone. And it feels like reparative in some in some way, the sense that Jarrett, you know, and, and the people that symbolise Jarrett um, gets an opportunity to have their story heard. And I appreciated how you foregrounded his experience. And I wonder if that was deliberate on your part. I kind of, I, I you know, there's a little, quite a lot of my son in Jarrett. Um, my my son spent his first five years in Ethiopia before he came home to us, and he is a very self-contained guy. <laughs> and there's a lot going on, you know, under the surface with him. Uh, and so, I, you know, my tenderness towards Jarrett is, to a large extent, you know, because I see so much of Bizu in him. And then I also, um, I wanted to give Jarrett everything that I've learned about horses as well. So it's that kind of relationship that he has with the horse where a horse can be the receptacle of all the affection that you can't safely express to other people. Um, and I just, I just really love him. So, you know, to the extent that you fall in love with your characters, I just really love this boy mm. and, and who becomes a man, of course. And yeah. yeah. There's a lot that I want to ask you about the book, but I also don't want to spoil it in case anyone hasn't read it. But um, there's a love story in the book, but then there are other love stories that I think are love stories but aren't explicitly love stories, and that's the relationship between Jarrett and Lexington. Yes. And also the relationship between Theo and Clancy. Because I thought yes. that, that was that, was I correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, for those that haven't read the book, Clancy is Theo's dog. And that relationship is just, it, it's just a joy to read. And then I, I don't want to ruin it, but, you know, but, but yeah. And I wonder if that was also deliberate on your part, you know, to talk about the relationships that we have with animals. It, it 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 I think it's one of the most important themes in the book. And the 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 Theo Clancy thing, I didn't plan it, it just grew. It just grew. And um, you know, our animals are incredibly important to me. I get it an immense amount of sustenance. Um, not just from the ones who consent to live with me, like my dog and my horse, but um, the biodiversity all around me. So, you know, a lot of people uh, have been laughing at me recently because I, I spent a lot of money building a hibernaculum, which is a house for snakes. Oh. Um, <laughs> in, in, in Massachusetts, snakes need to get below the frost line in winter. Wow. And how they do that often is by going into people's basements where wow. everybody goes, ah, and kills them. <laughs> And that's not good. So um, I built this thing where outside where they can go down under the frost line and uh, and have a nice winter. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, I get I get a lot of grief from people. I mean, if you've ever tried to call up the um, the equivalent of wires in the U.S. and say I've got a six skunk, they go, "You've got what?" <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Nobody wants to help a skunk, I learned. Yeah. <laughs> well. Um, um, so, yes, animal, the, the human-animal bond and, and our incredible uh, responsibilities, which we are not meeting to the species of this planet. And if we don't straighten up with this, we're going to be very lonely and then we're going to be gone. So, yeah. Mm. Um, I should let the audience know, actually, that um, Geraldine will be taking some questions, um, so I will open up the floor to you. So if you've got any questions, um, feel free to put your hand up and someone with a microphone will come to you. I wanted to find out, were there any bits in the writing process of this book that were particularly challenging? Oh, yeah. Um, tremendous number. Some of them to do with the ending, which I don't want to mm. talk about, <laughs> but... Um, Challenging, you know, the research was it was it was it was a joy, but it was it was also challenging. But the, I think the biggest challenge was it was to me the book that was least clear to me about how it was going to work in the end because I knew I had these three strands, but the braid wasn't actually you know it, it wasn't braiding till quite late in the writing process it did not come clear to me how I was going to connect them and so you had to just take it on trust and keep writing and keep writing and and hope that, that something would emerge but it came quite late so I was oh such a relief <laughs> now I see it and then I could do it yeah right and you were also writing this during the Trump presidency. Oh. <laughs> Not that we want to go back no, there again. No, but it, yeah, I started it in 2016. No, it was so hard to focus because you'd get up and what what did he do today? And he just he just toss your equilibrium right out the window and it wasn't like I was doing anything productive about it it wasn't like I was going and chaining myself to a detention center to save children being torn away from their parents I wasn't I was just doom scrolling and getting all upset and then not getting much writing done <laughs> well that's one way to put it or I could also argue that you wrote a book that you know uh that showed how much of history is still present in America and um, still hasn't been fully grappled with and dealt with and that still has those, you know, horrible consequences. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I it, it did fuel, you know, a certain amount of the anger that, you know, I, I put into the book, yeah. And it was also during a pandemic. The pandemic actually, you know, I don't want to say this when so many people suffered so much, but... The pandemic came for me. I, I, the other thing that happened is I lost my husband of 35 years suddenly, three years ago in the middle of writing this book. And he loved this book. He was really, he was a great advocate because he loved this period of history. And he was always bringing me bits from the archives that he thought. And we, we traveled together because he was researching a book. Uh, he writes, wrote nonfiction and it intersected. So we had a really interesting trip to Kentucky with our younger son as well, who was um, quite nervous about going into the South at the time. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, of course, when he just suddenly had a heart attack out of the blue, we had no idea he had a heart condition. And uh, that was a year, you know, just gone um at least and so um i don't know how, how did we get onto that <laughs> we're talking about the pandemic oh the pandemic yeah. so so what happened then was after he died there's this incredible pressure on you to be normal as quickly as possible mm. and it's so stressful mm. and then the world went sideways and nothing was normal and i didn't have to pretend that anything was normal mm. And the boys and I just huddled and it was actually a very therapeutic time for us. Mm. So sorry about your loss. You write very beautifully um, in the book about your husband's influence on your work and in particular the research for this book. Um, I'm curious, have you ever thought about writing a book based in Australia like that looks mm. at Australian history? Yes, I have. And so... I got very far down the track 
on a book about Joan Franklin in Tasmania. And I came upon two intractable problems with it. One was her diary, which was incredibly detailed. She wrote everything down, so there wasn't much room for me to imagine. And then her relationship with Mathena, who was this Aboriginal child that you could say adopted or you could say stolen, but in any case brought into her family and treated as her daughter and then abandoned into a system that she knew was brutalizing. And I could not come up with anything. You know, you have to, you have to be able to understand your characters as they understand themselves, mm. right? Nobody gets up in the morning and says, gee, I'm a creep and I'm going <laughs> to do evil things today. Nobody looks in the mirror and says that. They all have a story that they tell themselves. And if you as a novelist can't access that, then you can't really write them. And I couldn't access it. Was it because she'd left so many journals and she'd written about experience so you can sort of imagine her life? Both the, both the fact that I, as somebody who wants to stick close to the truth, I had to sort of stick close to the personality that was emerging there. But it was mainly the Mathena question that I, I couldn't answer it. And if you can't answer it, how can you possibly write it? Mm. And it's so painful. I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's unbearably painful. And so I, um, I have a couple of other ideas. Uh, the trouble with our history is it's so sad. Mm. You know, we, we really, until, you know, fairly recent times, this was a very sad place. And, okay, American history is sad, but it's not my sad <laughs> I don't know. I'm not, I understand I'm not that. Yeah. making sense, but you are making complete sense. <laughs> yeah. Just to your point about you know sticking to the facts as much as possible. I wonder when you were riding horse, how much did you rely on the historical archive, and then at what point did you go, okay, I've got it from here, and I'm just going to use my imagination to you know continue. I I, I kept everything I could. Uh, all the you know the things that were on the record. You know, because, and I've quoted it in the afterward, Mark Twain said, fiction must be plausible, truth needn't be, or words to that effect. <laughs> and, and truth is, it's so much more unlikely. And so everything in this book that seems unlikely, those are the true things. Mm. Um, so uh, I didn't, okay, so I, 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 I made some suppositions about the sexual preferences of the painter. There's no, there's no actual evidence that he was gay. It's just, to me, the way he lived his life suggests that to me. So I, um, I did give him a gay relationship for which there is no actual evidence. Um, uh, apart from that, it, and then I, I, I made up a connection that explains Martha Jackson and the painting, but Apart from that, it's pretty close to what we know to be true. Yeah. Great. Um, just letting the audience know that I'm now opening it up for questions. So if you've got a question for Geraldine, please feel free to put your hand up. And also letting you know that Geraldine will be doing a book signing and the bookseller is Antipodes and they're just stationed back there. Um, while we get a mic to the lady over there, um, we can I, we could repeat the question also. So why don't I've got a very quick oh, question before we get to that? Yeah, and it's about the stopwatch. Is it true that Lexington is the reason why the stopwatch exists? So they had stopwatches, but they didn't have a mass-produced one, and they made the mass-produced one because people were so obsessed with this horse, they wanted to be able to clock his times themselves. <laughs> that was how fast he was. Wow. Yes. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Remarkable. Yeah. Um, would you like to ask a question? Hi there. Uh, um, you were talking about sad, you know, anyone who um, is involved with writing any narrative, there is an emotional connection. And I'm curious to know how do you balance that for yourself when you're writing and you're connecting to whether it's sad or whether it's frustration, mm. the emotion that is apparent to you as you're writing those stories? You have to you have to use it. You have to use that strong emotion and that fuels 
the work. Yeah, and it, it is draining. You know, some days you just get to the end of the page and you're just, oh, you know. But uh, uh, it's it's kind of the cost of doing business in a way. I'm uh, in the middle of reading March very late, yeah. and I what I find so extraordinary, Geraldine, is your ability to write through a man's voice. I've never come across that with another writer, and I'm thinking about your your the need in Australia for men to be written very differently. And I'd really love to encourage you to 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 approach writing here. I, I think I think we need so desperately for men to be written in in, in with that kind of extraordinary uh, deep generosity, and so that we can all perceive men here differently. That is such an interesting point because I've just been rereading almost all of Tim Winton. Mm. So you have a problem with his portrayal of Aussie masculinity? Yes, yeah, interesting. I, you know, um, that first person um, male voice in March that was really hard, and it's not an experience I'm dying to repeat. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll tell you what I did learn is that when you're trying to capture a male voice, there are so many more of them on the record. Mm. So I, I, was, I was spoiled for choice with him because all these Victorian men banging on at length in their journals and their letters – and their poor wives are working so hard, they don't have time to write down their experience. You mm -hmm. know, so when you're looking for a, a female journal in America, you can't find one before 1750. And if you're writing in 1665, good luck, you know, no. You know, she was up before dawn and she didn't, go, you know, she was never done and if she was even allowed to become literate. so. But the men... Tons of them. <laughs> so, you know, you're kind of spoiled for choice on where you can hear their voices because their voices are very loud. I agree, but this, uh, but, but I think this is the particular difference of, of you as a woman writing because the whole society is served differently in that way. Well, it's an interesting point and I will think about it by I'm not yeah. racing to my desk. <laughs> and I'm sure there are other writers that will also fill that void. That's a lot to put on your plate. Um, I, I'm interested in this, 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 this idea of the voices that you foreground because that's something that I actually really enjoyed in Horse because, again, going back to the voices that are historically erased, you know, people of colour, yeah. black people, women, mm -hmm. and your book deliberately focuses on the experiences of women and black men and I also, and I wonder if that was also a deliberate choice because you were very much aware of the historical erasures. Yeah, no, hearing the unheard, you know, has always been really important to me. It started in my journalism, so um, my my time as a correspondent in um, the Middle East or West Asia or whatever we're calling it today. Um, the the everything changed for me when I started to talk to the women instead of the men because nobody else was bothering to do that and their, their stories were so much more powerful and um, to me gave you so much more insight into the, the cultures. And so seeking out the unheard has been um, a kind of a, a mission and, a, and it has carried on in the fiction. I always want to find um, what was it like to be the person who didn't have the chance to write it down. Mm. And I think about it even with my own, you know, my own forebears in this country on my mother's side came here in um, 1860 and they were both illiterate 
So I know that because they signed their name with a cross. Mm. And so it's, it's, I feel like there's a duty there because we don't know what it was like for that great-great-grandmother of mine to come from Ireland and find herself out behind Yass in that kind of dry, very different landscape. What was her life like? And I don't really know because she didn't have a chance to write it down. But I like to think that she can see her great-great-granddaughters, um, my sister with her PhD, and, you know, and, and the great privilege that we've had to, to be educated. Mm. Do we have got a couple of hands up? Um, yeah. Geraldine, I'm just wondering if you could um, amplify on some of the comments you made. I heard you on the ABC during the week, and you were talking about American contemporary American mm-hmm. society. And, um, you know, we shake our heads at what's happening there, the Roe versus Wade yeah. stuff, and just how you see American society evolving and is De- the evolving. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, no. I, I'm, I think it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's tragic what's going on there. I, I really see the country pulling apart, and I see two Americas emerging, and it's not so clear cut as, you know, there are very progressive pockets in Texas, Houston, and Austin, just as progressive as Massachusetts, but they're embedded in a troglodyte mentality, a a um, very um, theocratic and authoritarian society is emerging uh, in certain parts of the United States and because of Trump in the Supreme Court. And um, the overturning row, the Dobbs decision is going to cause so much pain, um, and 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 I'm I'm vexed with um, my side of politics because we should have been more prepared for this. Yeah. Anyway, I'm very proud of my son because he took time off work and put up three billboards in Jackson, Mississippi, right around the pink house, which was the last abortion provider in Mississippi, that say, pregnant, you still have a choice, and then directs women to uh, information about how they can safely get abortion pills. So really proud of him. Thanks, Geraldine, for coming today. That was actually my question as well, but just as an extension of that, I wondered um, what you think is the way forward. How does America heal from this point? I, you know, it's 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 a bit of a catastrophe because I'm a big supporter of Joe Biden, but I see that he is crumbling under the pressures that he is under, and I don't see anybody immediately standing behind him who can pick up the ball and and run with it as fast as it needs to be run with right now. So I'm really concerned that things are going to get a lot worse, that we're going to have a disastrous shellacking in the midterm elections. And then climate is, you know, nothing good will happen. It will go the other way. Um, The white supremacists will be even more enabled than they already are. And, you know, it looks very bleak. It looks very bleak to me. So, are there any hopes of, on the side of the Democrats, like an Amy Klobuchar or? Well, you know, she 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 could do it. She's got the name recognition. She's tough. She's um, she's not that likable. That's you know, I mean, <laughs> shouldn't be about that. But unfortunately, not that I think DeSantis is likable, but DeSantis really scares me because he's everything that Trump is, only smarter. And, and there's this tendency on that side of politics towards embracing an authoritarianism that is so anti-democratic. You know, the, the way that uh, the Fox News bloviators are, are extolling Victor Orban all the time and how great Hungary is. What? You know, and, and I blame Murdoch for a lot of this. So, you know, we, we've got some, something to account for this country unleashing that mm. on the world. So. Yeah. And we've gone into a very depressing <laughs> place here, but and and just to um, uh, welcome uh, uh, the the newest Kennedy to Australia, yes. the ambassador. What do you think? Is there any hope that maybe uh, uh, you know she can bring to Australia? Uh, I think she's 
I, I'll be, I think she's going to be great. Uh, and I, and I have to, you know, um, say that she's a friend of mine and, um, she has an unbelievably good sense of humor, which is crucial to being in Australia. <laughs> and I, I just emailed her this morning to say that I was on the ABC breakfast wedged between a piece on her arrival and a piece on mating a kinders. <laughs> and welcome to Australia. <laughs> uh, you know what's so great about her is that she really gets it on climate. She's a big environmentalist. Her son is a ferocious environmental campaigner. Um, and uh, she was, I think she did a, a couple of wonderful things in Japan in terms of getting the American apology for Hiroshima and also speaking out against the dolphin slaughter, um, which the State Department did not want her to do. So she's very much her own person, and I think that that's great. Um, and so I'm very optimistic, and I'm glad she's got a better government to work with because I would have been really embarrassed if she had to come here with Scotty from marketing. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly more superficial question. Um, just wondering, a more writerly question, what, what's your process? Do you generally find the characters first or do you generally find the structure, the story first, or does it vary? And also the, one of the things that endlessly fascinates people is the daily life of a writer and <laughs> how, do you, how do you structure your life, you know, with all these, um, you know, mm -hmm speaking engagements and other oh well this is this is a weird you know this is this is the thing you, you're you're alone in your room for five or in this case seven years and you'd go nowhere and see nobody <laughs> and then all of a sudden oh look people <laughs> so it's it's a kind of a, a little bit schizo existence in that regard but um it's nice too you know because it's good to get out <laughs> um my my usual uh, modus operandi is to hear a voice. You, you, you find that story that intrigues you, and then you ask yourself, who is going to be willing, we were talking about this earlier, who is going to be willing to rise up out of the grave and speak to me, and whose voice will I hear? And that will be the voice of the novel. In this case, the horse was not going to speak to me. <laughs> so I had to have a, you know, this is the, this is the most um, close third person book I've ever written. Usually I like to write in first person and it's in that voice that I can hear in my head. And until I can hear it, I can't start. But um, how she sounds tells me who she is and who she is tells me how she'll act and that sets the plot in motion. So that's how it usually works. And then um, the daily life, it used, to be, it used to be really easy to answer that question because it was all about the school bus in America. They have this very nanny state thing where they, <laughs> they send a bus to pick up your kid and take them away and bring them back. And so that was my work day between the bus leaving and the bus returning. So that was six hours and I got used to writing and if, if I – wasn't quite finished, that was good because then I'd start with a head of steam the next day. But now um, my youngest is 19 and there is no more school bus and I had to find a structure of my own. So the, the new structure is get up, feed the horses, muck out the stalls, make a cup of coffee, read a poem, get to work and sit there until it's time to make dinner, essentially. <laughs> wow. Uh, it's it's incredibly varied. Yeah, it depends um, how good I am about not being tempted to go online and <laughs> I was, look, I at, to ask look at dog videos. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about that. Like how, how what do you do to stay disciplined? Uh, and what mm -hmm. do you do in the days when you just don't have anything coming out of you? Do you still sit in front of your computer? You, ha you have to do something, you know. So I, I've got really good about writing badly because it's better to write badly than not write at all and to accept that you won't be able to produce good stuff every day, but you, ha you don't have any excuse to not produce any more than a hairdresser has any excuse not to cut hair or a metal press operator 
has any excuse not to go to work and press metal, you know? Yeah, but I feel like when the writing comes to you, that's when it's probably, you know, more inspired. I mean, I, I hear what oh, you're yeah, saying. Yeah, it's, totally. it's absolutely true. Um, and this is mm-hmm. very good advice for me, but I'm very procrastinating. <laughs> um, do we have any more questions? Yeah, there's a gentleman way over the back. The back. A question to a racing journalist. You mentioned in the book that 19th century horses, for particular reasons, were probably more stronger than race horses today. How would um, Lexington compare to the great Australian legends like Farlap? Yeah, so I am not sure because I don't know that Farlap was ever tried over four miles. And to be able to run four miles three times in one day, it's a very different kind of race horse. And also they didn't start them as young as we start them now. They were much more sensible about that. So I can't really answer that. I I know people who could, though, because to research this book, I talked to a lot of vets who specialize in the biomechanics of the horse. (laughs) And I can put you onto them if you really want a definitive answer. (laughs) And I wasn't a racing journalist. I was the lowly cadet who schlepped along to the races to take down all the details. I didn't get to write a single word of prose the whole four months I did that job. (laughs) Thank you, Geraldine. Your books have such a a rich historical sweep, but given that we're in such turbulent contemporary times historically, are there any stories now that speak to you that you would like to research and pick up? If I did, I'd do it as a journalist. Yeah, Is because there non-fiction if, that you would like to go back to. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, um, I feel like if you, if if it's about now, you can find out. You know, you don't have to make it up. Just go and do the work and do the reporting. So, yeah, you know, sometimes I get very tempted to do that, and then usually I take a hot bath and the urge passes. <laughs> You mentioned that you were rereading Tim Winton, and I'm curious, is that for any particular reason? or? Yes, it was. Um, there's a series of books called Writers on Writers, and so I was asked to contribute to that series, and I chose to write about Tim Winton. Oh, fantastic. Mm. Um, I could sit up here and talk to you all afternoon, <laughs> but unfortunately we're, we're out of time. Um, thank you all for joining us. Um, Geraldine will be signing some books um, shortly. So if you could all join me in, again, thanking Geraldine Brooks. thank you. That was Santilla Chenepe in conversation with Geraldine Brooks. It was recorded on the 22nd of July, 2022, as part of Books and Ideas at Montalto. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.